So it's just a completely different way of observing the universe. Hey everyone, welcome to Nerdin' About. I'm Space Michael, and with me as always is someone who is growing out her hair, looking pretty good, and that's Dr. <laughs> Kaylee Byers. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I do think it looks good. I also think it's starting to look a little frazzled, which is, you know, just kind of how I feel about myself in general. Like, I'm doing pretty good, but I'm also pretty frazzled. How about you? How are you doing over there with your uh, your haircut? <laughs> well, uh, you can see people obviously listening can't see, but I'm, I'm I got a bit of a you know a bit of a swoop going. You know, they uh, I usually have it in a part, so when I have the hair in a part and it swoops down, you know, it's very emo like. So doing anything to try to dissuade people from knowing what my actual age is. Yeah, next week uh, or next time we record, there'll be some heavy eyeliner and some other things <laughs> accompanying the haircut for sure. Absolutely, yes. Well, I'm not the only one. Well, we're both not the only. One one's growing our hair long. Actually, our guest today is also growing out their hair. So today we're joined by Corey Gray. Corey is Scottish and Blackfoot and a member of the Siksika Nation of Alberta. Corey is a detector operator for LIGO, which stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory at Caltech. Corey has worked with teams to build and operate gravitational wave detectors. Hi, Corey. How are you doing? Hey, good evening. How are y'all doing? I'm doing good. We are also well. We're really excited to be here with you today. And I, I'm i especially excited to learn what the heck gravitational waves are. So maybe we can start there. What the heck are gravitational waves? So the whole idea of gravitational waves come from a long time ago, from over a century ago. They come from a gentleman by the name of Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein flipped the world of physics on its head by coming up with a completely new uh, way of thinking about what gravity is. So prior to Albert Einstein, uh, gravity was thought of as a force between two objects. I mean, there's the idea of, of Newton sitting under a tree and then the earth is the force of the gravitational force of the earth is pulling down on that apple and it hits him on the head. Einstein went completely different. He thought of a different way of thinking of gravity because he didn't think that explained everything uh, well. So instead of a force, gravity is the effect of any mass on the space around it. And, and, and uh, space or space-time, I'll use those words interchangeably. So every object bends the space around it. My water bottle right here is bending the space-time around it, but uh, and I'm bending space around me as well. But those effects are so tiny that we we can't detect them, we can't observe them. And the main reason is because space-time, this medium that we live in in our universe, is very stiff. It's a rigid medium, so it's hard to bend it and warp it, unless you are an object that is just hard to comprehend. If you're something like a neutron star, if you're like our sun, or if you're like a black hole, all those objects are much bigger and uh, they do have effects that are a little more observable with how they affect the space time around them. I'll go with the extreme case. Black holes are these areas in space time where you just have super bending or warping of space around them. And so if you take a black hole 
or a neutron star, something that's very strong with gravity, and you move it around in space-time, as you're moving it around in space, you're causing these little wiggles in that medium in space-time. And those little wiggles are what gravitational waves are. And so a year after Einstein talked about the general theory of relativity, released that to the world, he did the math for gravitational waves. So in 1916, a year after, and like on the back of an envelope, he, he put in what he knew about back then, stars. And if you take two stars and smash them together, would you be able to see these signals? Would you be able to see these wiggles in space time? And back then he, he thought with what they knew back then, it would just be so hard. These uh, events would, are so far away. And by the time these wiggles in space time come to the earth, they'd be monumentally small and they would just, it would be too hard to detect them. Fast forward a year, I mean, a century later and things would change. Oh my gosh, I love that they're wiggles. Okay, so gravitational waves are adorable li little wiggles in space time. <laughs> so you were talking about how we move space around us. Do I have wiggles? Like really little wiggles? <laughs> yes. And ours are going to be super small. But I should say that if you were next to, you know, a black hole and a neutron star or two black holes, as they're dancing around each other, if you were there next to them and uh, as they're wiggling space around them, the gravitational waves from their movement would rip you apart. It would, it, it would, oh. <laughs> it would stretch you, it would compress you, and it would just oscillate you, and you in, into different directions. Uh, until you're just you're no longer with us anymore. So it, it we're luckily that's a good thing. L luckily, all of these strong gravity objects are uh, millions and billions of light years away. So it's a good thing that they're teeny, 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 tiny by the time they pass through the Earth. Okay, so gravitational waves, real cute from a distance, but like <laughs> not so cute <laughs> really close up because they will tear you apart. Yeah. <laughs> so you were talking about this prediction made by Albert Einstein over 100 years ago. How then did LIGO prove that prediction that these little wiggly wiggles exist? How did LIGO prove it? So I'll go back a little bit. I'll go a few decades in the past and talk about how gravitational waves were proven indirectly by uh, some astronomers at Arecibo. Uh, Michael, you might know Arecibo in Puerto Rico. That's a big radio telescope mm -hmm. dish that just uh, it collapsed. RIP. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so uh, uh, some astronomers there, I think it's in the 60s and 70s, they saw two neutron stars that were orbiting each other. And one thing that they saw was that there was energy that was leaving that system. And they were able to see mathematically that the energy that was leaving was gravitational waves that were coming from it. So indirectly, they, they were able to prove the existence of gravitational waves. But also around that time, other physicists were coming up with other ways to detect them. Like, how could we detect these signals? And so uh, one gentleman by the name of Dr. Ray Weiss, who's from MIT, and uh, Dr. Kip Thorne from Caltech, uh, these were two gentlemen who, who were trying to solve that. They're, tr they're talking about it and thinking of ways that they could do it. And Ray Weiss came up with this instrument that he thought would be able to detect these signals. In its most simple terms, basically Ray came up with a ruler, like the most sensitive ruler that you could build. I like to think of it as we have this ruler has two objects at the end of it. So I'm in Washington state right now, and my work is about a 20 minute drive away out my window as I look out here. And at the detector, we have these two objects, they're mirrors or masses, 
and they're eight kilometers apart. And what we can do is we could tell precisely the distance between them and we can resolve any change in the distance between them down to a distance a thousand times smaller than the diameter of a proton. So a teeny, teeny, tiny length change is what we could see over those eight kilometers between those two mirrors. And that's the sensitivity that we need to be able to detect or feel these wiggles in space time that are showering through the earth all the time. So if you need a big signal, but if you have one that's big enough and that our, and our machine is sensitive enough to detect those wiggles and it moves our mirrors around, that's how we record and can directly detect gravitational waves. You know, Corey, you're describing, you know, gravitational waves as being sensitive and, you know, Kaylee, you described them as cute, but they're also like really harsh and they'll destroy you. Like this is sounding very emo. I think gravitational waves are the emo forces in the universe. Gravitational waves for sure have an asymmetrical haircut that covers one eye. <laughs> I need to get a new haircut, I think. I need to copy Michael. <laughs> so, Corey, you you work uh, in Washington State at the detector there, but there is another identical detector in Louisiana, I believe, right? That's correct. We have two detectors for LIGO. LIGO stands for the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. And uh, for advanced LIGO, which is the configuration that we have at both observatories, that's what we've been running since about 2015, off and on. So we've been uh, online and recording data three different periods over the last you know, five years. And then we go online, record data, then we go offline like we are right now and do upgrades to the hardware or to the instruments. So that's what we're doing now. We're not recording data right now. And we will currently be down until the middle of 2022. And that's when we'll come back online. And then uh, it won't just be us uh, as well. So for the last two observing runs, that's what we call these runs when we're online. There's another detector in Italy by the, uh, by the name of Virgo, and they've been with us as well. So we have three detectors that have been online for the last two observing runs. And uh, there's a fourth uh, detector in Japan that's called Kagra. And that one is also getting ready to come online. It was with us for a little bit at the end of the last observing run, 03, but they'll be joining us for sure for the next observing run. So why do you need all of these detectors? Is it really just to verify the results? Like originally, when you first detected the gravitational waves, it was the two observatories in the States, in Washington State and Louisiana, that did, had detected it. But why do you need all of these uh, working all at once? That's a good question. So for sure, that was one of the first ideas. That's when, when the project for LIGO was out there, the proposal for it. Uh, we wanted to confirm the results. So that's why in that proposal, the, the idea was to build two detectors for LIGO. So that's one thing. But the other thing is that these detectors don't tell you exactly where events are coming from in, from in the universe. So we don't really know in what direction they're coming from. Well, we kind of do, but it's kind of a time of arrival thing. So with just two detectors, when we record a signal with the, the two LIGO detectors, we're able to kind of look in the sky and get, get a rough idea of where that uh, event is coming from. But with just two detectors, it's a huge area in the sky. So the way to make that better is to have more detectors. So instead of just having two detectors, the more you add, that area in the sky gets smaller and smaller. So instead of two detectors, if you add a third one, that big banana looking thing shape in the sky gets smaller and smaller. And that's what optical observatories want. Other you know, astronomers, they want that. They don't want 
us to tell them, oh, look in the sky in this area of the sky that's huge. You're going <laughs> to you're going to see something. If we tell them that there, there's not much they could do. That. It would take them forever to find that signal. So with more detectors, we could shrink it down and give them a much better area to point their instruments and, and find events that we're looking at. So if we just pull back uh, just for a second, just to talk about the wiggles, as Kelly described them, we're talking about like a very, very precise measurement of something that is almost imperceptible. But essentially, we're also, you know, on Earth, we're creating lots of these wiggles, you know, a big truck walk rolls by and, and the ground rumbles. Are we talking about the same thing or are gravitational waves like a different kind of thing than the kind of vibrations that we're sort of used to here on Earth? Yeah, it's a unique thing. So the the detector, these land-based gravitational wave detectors, uh, they can't see everything. They're they're designed to look at certain frequencies. So that's that's the other thing. So frequency is a unit that we is the big unit that we use for us. So for LIGO, the the frequency window that we can look at and focus at is from a few tens of hertz. So that's you know ten wiggles per second up to several kilohertz or several thousand wiggles per second. That's the window we can look at. So anything below about 20 to 30 hertz is going to be too noisy. Our, our instruments are not going to be sensitive there. So what's low frequency stuff? So that, that's going to be a lot of effects, cultural effects. So trucks driving by, earthquakes, anything magnitude uh, six is something that we would definitely move our detector around. And we know that we're not going to see anything low frequencies, you know, stuff that's really slow. So we're definitely a, an instrument that could only look at certain, a certain band of frequencies. And, and luckily within that band of frequencies, our uh, possible sources would be binary systems, like binary, you know, uh, when you have two objects, it could be a black hole and another black hole or a black hole and a neutron star, those objects crashing into each other. So those frequencies, when those objects are spinning around, are right within that band of frequencies. So between 40 and 2000 hertz. So that's what our machines are catered to. But yeah, earthquakes, they de we definitely feel them. Trucks driving by, we definitely feel them. Big uh, storms in the North Atlantic, we'll see them in Louisiana and Washington at our detectors. So that low frequency noise is stuff we just have to, to ride through and... Uh, uh, we don't even try to look at low frequency or slow signals. So I, I have a, a question about something that you were talking about earlier, and this is just sort of a clarifying thing for me. Black holes, I think I have a basic understanding of, but what's a neutron star? So stars have a, you know, they have a, a life cycle. And so as they live, they burn different types of fuel. And towards the end of, of their life cycle, they, they get to a point where they're running out of fuel to burn and, and they can either explode into a supernova and just spew all types of matter throughout the universe, and, and that could be it, or they could explode into supernova and then collapse into something called a neutron star, which is a lot, you know, that you have this big object that's, you know, similar to the size of our sun or a lot bigger, and then you, that thing could evolve into something that's a lot more compact and heavy and dense. You know, it's, that's about the size of the uh, diameter of, of Vancouver. But it's something that, you know, could be many suns into that, that object that, that's, that's compact and stuff like that. And one of the things people say about neutron stars is that you could take a spoonful of a neutron star and, and that material would weigh about, about the size of uh, Mount Rainier or something. So they're just very compact objects. And those are the ones that we love for LIGO because th those compact 
objects are the ones that would warp space a lot more than, you know, just like our sun. And so those are the ones that are the best candidates for generating these large signals that uh, we can detect with our uh, detectors. That's amazing. They almost sound like cake pops. You know how you make a cake <laughs> and it's like normal, but a cake pop is about 10 cakes <laughs> inside one pop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. Wow. <laughs> They're the cake pop of the universe. Yes. Um, so, I mean, we've detected several, uh, we've had several detections over the years and uh, the, the large percentage of them have been uh, uh, black holes, involved black holes. So I have I have a ranking of like my favorite detections, but one of my favorites was our first uh, binary neutron star detection. I think up to that point we'd only detect we we detected about eight detections, all of them binary black holes, two black holes crashing into each other. But then August of 2017 was our the first time we saw two neutron stars crash into each other, and I was actually on shift that week. And so that, that's, one of, that's one of the reasons why I love it. But the thing was, it happened uh, here and it was like five in the morning and I didn't know what was going on at first. I was just working and in the control room. Uh, and then my counterpart in Louisiana called me up and he said, I, I don't, I won't do a Louisiana accent, but uh, Corey, you better uh, jump into this uh, meeting. There, there's a, a telecon, a, a conference call. And so I jumped in and in that meeting, all I heard were scientists screaming at each other and even cussing <laughs> and like, like just shouting. And I, I just didn't know what's going on. And then as soon as you hear, you heard, heard the word neutron star, you knew that it was a huge thing. And so everybody was just excited because they wanted to confirm that this was a, a binary neutron star event. But then the other thing is that they were writing down the alert that we were going to send to astronomers around the planet so that they would know where to look for this event. And what's so cool about it that as soon as that, that was five in the morning. So when the sun went down later that day, you know, 12, 10 hours later, that's when the light from that same event that we saw in gravitational waves 10 hours earlier was observed with optical telescopes in Chile. And so it, and then, then all of the other wavelengths of, uh, of light, it was seen in, in all the other different wavelengths. And so that happened months after we saw that that signal in gravitational waves. So that was just an exciting event. So you were talking about being able to detect these these big things and these gravitational waves are are really small and here on Earth we can't really feel them. But do they have an effect on our planet or to us as people? Why is studying them important? I think what's good about it is just knowing more about our universe. So gravitational waves and gravitational wave astronomy, which began basically when we made that first detection, is a completely new field. Gravitational waves are a different medium or it's a different signal than any other type of astronomical signals that we have. So everything else is light. So electromagnetic is, is, is in the electromagnetic spectrum and come from effects at the atomic level. So light, infrared, radio waves, gamma rays, uh, x-rays, etc. All of that is electromagnetic waves or, or light. Gravitational waves are completely different. They, they pass through matter. They pass through objects. They don't get un unimpeded by any, any of that stuff. And they carry the information from where they come from as well. And, and their, their effect is not at the atomic level. It's the actual objects themselves, that, that mass that's moving around. The waves that they generate comes from them versus atomic effects from them. So it's just a completely different way of observing the universe. And so, and, and with 
land-based detectors, we're only looking at a little window, but there's other projects that are gonna be looking at much lower frequencies and also faster frequencies as well. So it's a completely new field of astronomy. So that's a big important thing about it. Yeah, I could almost like, picture sort of like, you know, in like, say like a building and you sort of look at, you know, the Department of Physics and Astronomy and they have all the different departments. And all of a sudden, in a matter of instance, you've just created a whole new branch. And it's 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 kind of, I don't know if it's dramatic or theatrical, the way it, everything happened. I mean, you have the main player of Einstein who's involved here, a century, almost down to the month after general relativity was announced. That's when this first detection passed right through the Earth from two black holes that crashed into each other a billion years ago, a billion light years away. And, and then, yeah, five months later, we announced it. I don't know. There's, I love the movie Contact. I mean, it was something, I don't know, I think something like that. There should be a movie about it, but it's just the, just the way you can't even think of a better way of it happening as well. Who would play Corey in this movie? That's a good question. That's a good question. In my talk, I say it's because uh, I like to talk like I like visualization. So I'm dating myself, but there's the movie The Matrix. And uh-huh. so there's the, the scene at the end where Neo's bending space, space around him like uh, because of his powers. And so when I show that in my talks, I always say that I think uh, – Keanu Reeves should probably play me. <laughs> yes. And I love that this is two for two because we just in our last recording with Vanessa talked about Keanu Reeves. So I love that he's making an appearance in multiple episodes. Well, Corey, I I think that you should definitely be a character in this movie because there's another part of the story that I'd love to get into. As we've mentioned, you're from the Six Sigma Nation, which is outside of Calgary. And one of the things that you've said that you're most proud of in your time at the LIBRGO Observatory is that you and your mom translated Gravitational Waves, the press release, into Blackfoot. Uh, could you maybe tell us about that story and why that's so special for you? Yeah, I mean, you learn to reflect on stuff after the fact. And so that's something that I've uh, learned to think about because I didn't really think much of it when it happened. When people ask, what do you what do you think most about with your work or what are you most proud of? Of course, with the other team members, our hands have been on the metal and glass of the parts that are of this machine that have been wiggled by black holes in the other side of the universe. And that's cool. But I think the thing I'm most proud of is that I had the chance to recruit my mother to, to work with me. And it all happened during that period, that five-month period when we were under embargo. Uh, we couldn't say anything about this detection that we were sitting on uh, because we were analyzing the data, confirming that it's real, writing a paper for it. And in the last month, January-ish of 2016, we were getting ready to announce it. And I was in the or I am in the outreach group for LIGO. And one of the topics that came up was the press release and how we wanted to share it with the world in as many languages as possible. And so I didn't bring it up in the meeting, but uh, later on that day, I emailed one of my uh, fellow colleagues and asked her if it's okay if I uh, share this story with my mom or if we could share it with my mom so that she could translate it. Uh, this press release or, or the scientific document into an indigenous language. And and almost immediately, my, my colleague said, of course. She asked me, this is a trusted colleague of yours, right? And it's my mom. So yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that happened. I was I think my, my mom had about a week and a half to two weeks to work on translating the press release, which was a two-page document. She did it about a, a day before 
we announced on February 11, 2016. And, and she got a lot of help with family uh, up in Calgary and up, up on the reserve. Uh, and so it was a family effort as well. Yeah, it was just a really cool thing. And, and like I said, I didn't really think too much about it at the time. It's, I guess, because uh, I grew up with the language and I'd always hear my mom speaking on the phone, talking to, uh, to my grandparents in Blackfoot. So it was, language was a part of my life and uh, my siblings as well, just hearing it all the time. So that's why it was just a natural thing for me to ask LIGO, my, my fellow collaborators, if it was okay, if we could do this. That's so cool. Did you, cause you were saying your mom worked with other family members on it to work with on it. Did you work with them all so closely? Like, did they have questions about it as you were going through? I think if it was me, I'd be like, I, once again, what are gravity? <laughs> So, I mean, surprisingly not. I thought I would get more questions with it, but a good chunk of the text in the press release, I mean, there are Blackfoot words for it, but eventually they come up to different concepts. So, I mean, gravitational waves, there's not a Blackfoot word for that. So my mom would ask me to describe what they are. Black holes, she was able to make a word for that, just using the Blackfoot word for black and also for hole and putting it together. But yeah, there's just other concepts of relativity. There's that where I just had, I just explained it to my mom in as simple terms as I could. And then I let her kind of take, take it over and make new Blackfoot words from my descriptions. And I mean, with science communication, generally, a lot of the time, just describing things instead of using terminology can be the most powerful way to explain what you're seeing, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. So Corey, <laughs> you've actually made a bit of an appearance on the podcast before. Previous guest, Kim Senclip Harvey, spoke about interviewing you for her creative work, Break Horizons, which we're, I know all of us, very excited about. Yeah, totally. <laughs> about space. And part of the conversation that we had was around indigenous perspectives in science. And so I'm curious about where you think um, science and the indigenous perspective sort of converge and what Western science can learn from interweaving of indigenous knowledge in your field. That's a bit of a journey, I guess. And it's something that is a little newer for me because I've been focused on my studies and then then my career. But it's something that uh, that I've learned through science communication and trips and just speaking to different audiences and just hearing about the science uh, of our people and, and specifically just hearing about with my tribe, just learning about how Blackfoot culture and people have that connection to the sky. I don't know if you've been, you know, outside of Calgary and just been out there and just to see how big the sky is and how dark it is and all the objects you can see out there. It's, it's amazing when you're out there and you witness that and you could kind of understand why or how it could be such an important thing to a people. And so uh, with my tribe, uh, there's different ways. So it's uh, a lot of our stories come from different beings in the sky with, uh, t- with regards to the sun and different constellations as well. And then a lot of our TV dot designs, I never knew this, but a lot of them reflect astronomy as well. What else? And then there's something that's a little newer to me, which is instruments that are called medicine wheels that are kind of throughout this latitude, uh, you know, the, the latitude of Calgary and, and, and North America, that area there. There's areas where you have uh, cairns or piles of rock that are aligned in certain angles and directions. And, and the idea is that they're used to, to watch the sky as well. And they're all, you know, thousands of years old. 
And, and Stonehenge is also at that same latitude. And it, it's a similar instrument on the other side of the planet at that same latitude. So it's kind of an interesting to, thing to, to learn about. And so those are things that are just, I'm just kind of excited to learn about those concepts and just indigenous science, indigenous technology. And uh, yeah, I, this is a personal thing, but I mean, I built a kayak, a wooden kayak for the first time last summer. That was my pandemic project. And I didn't even think of it about it, but I knew it. But kayaks are indigenous engineering and technology that's been around for thousands of years, you know, four to 5,000 years. And it's just amazing to, to be sitting in my boat and thinking about this technology that was honed and perfected over, you know, many centuries. And so I don't know, I'm, I get addicted to learning more about that, this kind of stuff. Oh, should we get to some nerd herd questions? Oh my gosh, yes, please. Why is the sky? What's at the center of a black hole? When we evolve, does anyone have free will? It's like carbon it's based. The fastest thing on Earth. Why do we keep pets? It's time for listener questions. All right, if you want to get in on the nerd herd questions, we post them on our socials at nerdnightyvr. And our first one comes from Russ, who asks, How far along is the LIGO detector? And uh, what will it be useful for, for other reasons, I think is what he's asking. Like how, uh, what kind of other detections do you think it could make? So where are we at? So we're, we're not quite at the design sensitivity that we were, uh, the project, the proposal for the project uh, was written for. So like I said earlier, uh, we kind of alternate between going online and offline. And so when we're offline, that's when we improve the detector and make uh, changes to it to build it and get its sensitivity better. And so we, we have a couple more steps to go until we get to that design sensitivity. And when I talk about sensitivity, it's basically how quiet can we make our machine? How, how sensitive can it be to events in space? So the other way to think about it is the better your sensitivity means the farther out in the universe you could detect signals. And that just means we can make more detections. And, and then what's it for or what's in the future? I mean, I kind of talked about a, a little bit about the types of detections that we make. A lot of them have been black hole, you know, binary black holes, uh, but there's been a couple of binary neutron stars and then we've had a black hole and a neutron star. And, and in total, I think uh, so far we've uh, confirmed 50, 50 of these types of gravitational wave events. But I think what's going to be exciting is the thing that is, is going to be new and a, and a surprise to us. Because in, in almost all areas of astronomy, there's uh, discoveries that happen that were a complete surprise to, to the astronomers. And so there has to be a gravitational wave signal that's going to be something totally that we didn't, uh, the theorists didn't have an idea about. We, uh, we have a question from Armin who asks, can gravity go faster than light? So I would rephrase the question and just say, or the way I would answer it is, can gravitational waves move faster than light waves. And uh, what we confirmed with that detection I talked about earlier with the binary neutron stars is that they move at the same speed. They move at the speed of light. And so that morning when I was in the control room, I did get an alert that told me we had a gamma ray burst that, that was registered by a satellite up in the sky. And so we get those all the time. And so I didn't really think anything of it, about it, but that's when my, my colleague told me to call in and listen to those people. But the way we analyze the data takes like a few minutes. So the data is being recorded online and it usually takes us a few minutes to confirm that we see a signal. But the way everything went down was that the gravitational waves passed through the earth first and then it's a fraction of a second later that we saw gamma rays. So that's why the satellite saw it next. 
And then, then you're seeing the whole story. So you're seeing the different colors from that event as well. And then x-rays and then radio waves. So all of those, you're seeing the whole story in gravitational waves and then light that comes at different wavelengths. All at the same speed. Uh, our last question comes from Amy who asks, do you think we could ever surf these kinds of waves? <laughs> I've heard a few people uh, ask this question before and I, I would not know how you do that. I mean, that, that would be maybe if you had uh, some alien technology from uh, billions of years in the future, maybe, but yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. <laughs> what size of particle could surf those waves? Oh. Yeah, I don't know if you'd want to do that. I, I didn't talk about as these waves are moving through space, like I said, they're moving as a wave, but you can't really jump on the wave because there's space time. So it's the actual space time that's that's vibrating and you're we're all a part of space time. So as that wave is coming towards you, it's going to uh, compress you in one direction and then expand you in the other direction. So you're a part of space time and you're in there, you're going to be feeling that. And so it would be hard to ride that. You might feel it. It might, you know, move your body around, but it, yeah, you're not going to, it'll be hard to ride that. I would think. You definitely feel nauseous. I think. <laughs> yeah. The closer you are. Yeah, definitely. Oh, wow. This is amazing. Uh, should we nerd out even more? Oh my gosh. Yes. I would love a nerd out. What you nerd about? All right. If you want to get in on the nerd outs, hit us up on our socials at nerdnightyvr. You can even email us vancouver at nerdnight.com. Our first nerd out comes from Lindsay, who's nerding out about spiders, mostly huntsmen who hide in their room. Uh, How is the spider situation down there in Washington, Corey? I don't think it's that bad. I remember the spider situation being a lot worse in Southern California where I grew up. But we do have black widows here and we do see them at work sometimes as well. Are they also curious about <laughs> detecting gravitational waves? No, they just bite people. On the, that we've had one person bitten on the head by one, but yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. Like spiders are kind of like, because they're very sensitive. They create their web. And when there's a vibration, you know, on that web, you know, they're detecting. Could spiders detect gravitational <laughs> waves? Maybe if they had, yeah. Maybe it was big enough. I don't know. I love it. Next investment, spider tech. <laughs> Corey, uh, what have you been nerding out about recently? I mean, I've kind of talked a little, my problem is that I'm all over the place and I don't focus on a lot of things. So that's the reason why I don't really get anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) So I've kind of alluded to just uh, indigenous science and then also science communication. Those are things that are always on my mind, but I think right now it would probably be kayaking because like I said, I just built a wooden kayak and my goal this year is to be able to kayak overnight, like on a, on a, on a journey. So there, there's a big 50 mile lake that's near here. And I want to kayak that hopefully in July when it's super hot. Very cool. Have you rolled in it yet? That's on my list. I mean, if it wasn't pandemic, I would have already signed up for a lesson, but that's what I'd really like to do because Lake Chelan, which is where I want to paddle and then do this journey on is a place that it's really cold. And like, if I couldn't roll to get back, it would be just so hard to get back into the kayak. So that's something I want to learn how to do. 
I took a rolling course a couple years ago because I also really like what? kayaking, but it's a, very hard and I am a very buoyant person. So I kind of thought that my buoyancy would help me. It didn't. Oh, you said it's hard. It's hard? <laughs> or I thought it was hard. You know, you go under and then like there's the big sweeping motion that you have to do to get yourself back up. And okay. my, my big problem is that I'm very enthusiastic. And so what happens is I get out of the water and then immediately go back in on the other side. <laughs> oh, wow. Gee. So you kind of did it then. <laughs> Yeah, I did a, a little full bit. roll. <laughs> yeah, full roll. <laughs> okay. Wait, wait, no, hold on. Because I've never kayaked before, but when you're describing this rolling, like, is this something, you're not doing this on purpose. It's just that if you accidentally tip over, you know how to get back up. Yeah, yeah. So when I when I jump into the kayak, into the, the, the hole that my body jumps, or my legs go through, I could put this thing on that's called a skirt, and I could seal that that the rest of that hole up so that... As I'm kayaking on the lake, and if a big wave happens, not a gravitational wave, but if a big wave happens <laughs> to knock me over, instead of jumping out of the kayak, I could stay in the kayak. And then as Kaylee knows how to do, you just flip yourself back over and then you're back in business. You don't have to, because it's so hard to jump back, to get back into a kayak in the water. Oh my gosh. Uh, otherwise, you'd have to care, you'd hold onto your kayak and then swim to shore and you freeze and then you jump in. So it's just a it's a lot more easier just to do learn how to do a roll and stay in with your boat. So Michael, you haven't I imagine then that you're not nerding out about kayaking. Uh, what are you nerding out about? Uh, anyway, my nerd out is on music, which is kind of weird. You know, this pandemic has been very strange, very introspective place. So much self-evaluation this past year. You know, I realized I have not been listening to much music this past year, except when I go for runs. And that's just, you know, metal and techno, very, you know, functional music to get me going. And the reason is that I haven't been listening to music is that I find the act of listening to music like very, very social. So recently through the pandemic, my friends and I found this game and it's called Music League and it's an app and how it works is that you have a host and they pick a theme, uh, say songs for kicking ass or cover songs. And then people submit songs and it generates a Spotify playlist. And then you upvote songs you like and possibly downvote songs you don't like. And in the end, you have a leaderboard and then a bunch of comments about people liking your songs or just trolling you, making fun of you for liking that song. And it ends up being pure chaos because, you know, music is very subjective. And for me, and uh, for a lot of other people, it's very personal, right? So you think that a group of friends that are basically all the same age, we like the same things generally, you know, you think that we would be able to agree on certain things. But if there's anything that this league has proven, it's that people's interpretation of music can be very different and very surprising. You know, like two people can really like the same song, but for very different reasons. And the same thing for not liking a song. Um, so this got me thinking about how important music is in society and how it can be used in science communication, like Jay Ingram said in a previous show and how in general we've all been missing it because we have not been social. Uh, and you can see already in videos of places in the world, like we're recording this in March of 2021, you know, as places start to ease up in New Zealand, like what's the first thing that they're doing? Big outdoor concerts. So, you know, in recent years, I haven't been a big concert goer, but, you know, I think I am going to be now, you know, as soon as they're coming back, because if there's people that need more support, Right now, you know, musicians certainly cannot take music for granted because it pl obviously plays such a really important role in our lives. Um, so support your local musicians, buy those albums. Don't just listen on Spotify. Uh, hopefully we can all go to a live show soon. I think we should definitely get Jay Arner, who... 
uh, wrote our two themes for this podcast uh, on our first live nerd night back in the Fox Cabaret. What do you think, Kaylee? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great idea. What about you, Corey? What kind of music are you into? Uh, I was going to say two things about music. Just uh, So the first thing I was going to say is, in uh, I don't know if it was the last episode, but Kaylee, you were talking about how your dad loved ABBA. ABBA loves ABBA. <laughs> so, yeah, I was going to say because uh, the founders of LIGO, they won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2017. And so I got to go. I, I paid my own way and I took vacation days to go there. And my family went with me and we got to go to the with my dad. We got to go to the ABBA Museum. So I have like an ABBA shirt. And oh it, my gosh. it takes you to another <laughs> level. Like I thought I was OK ABBA fan, but now I'm like way up there. It's amazing. I mean, you have to take your dad there. You have to go. He has to go. Oh, yeah. The other thing I was going to say was with science communication and music, I mean, that is such a cool thing and important thing. When we announced in 2016, just the reaction of the public was a crazy and awe-inspiring thing to behold. And then uh, there's a person who's his group is called acapella science. I think that's the name of it. Yeah, but so good. He made, he made a song about our discovery and it's, it's an awesome song. I mean, I, I rock out to it and I've sometimes played at the beginning of talks just to get everybody energized, but yeah, music is so important with Psychom, I think. Uh, so Kaylee, uh, what have you been nerding out about more music? Uh, hopefully actually hilariously, I have been nerding out about music. <laughs> so, uh, I was recently interviewed on a friend's podcast and that podcast is called music for PhDs run by our mutual friend, Sunita Legalu. Yeah, Sunita. And, uh, it's all about our connection to music. And on this episode, Sunita asked me about the types of music I like to work and to study too. Thankfully I don't have to study anymore, but to work too. And my answer centered around maritime music. And over the past few days, I've been putting together a bit of a Spotify playlist for her to link to the episode, and I'm calling it Maritime Vibes for Foot-Tapping Productivity. And um, while making this album, I was reading a little bit about the different types of fiddle music, which I should already know because my dad used to pack me off to the Gaelic College in Cape Breton in the summertime (laughs) about jigs and reels. So if anyone's curious to tell the difference between what is a jig and what is a reel, well, a jig is in six, eight times, so essentially six beats per bar and you know if you go jiggity 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 <laughs> reels are in 4-4 four, four time and you can know if you're singing along to the beat and you can say rutabaga 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 <laughs> and uh, while thinking about these tunes it made me think about the songs we would dance to in Nova Scotia in the summertime so since the age of eight my dad and I've gone to these square dances in Tony River Nova Scotia and when I was younger, they were held once a week in this small community center by the water. And um, I was always the youngest person there. And my dad was always the second youngest. And most folks were, you know, in their 70s, 80s. And we just fly around the dance floor doing this dance that we always affectionately called the Nova Scotia Stomp, wow. which actually I think is made up because <laughs> the internet doesn't know what it is. But the dance was a polka. So you dance it in a one, two, three, hop, one, two, three, hop. And the hop was always, we jump super high in the air and we just come down real hard on our feet and stomp on the ground. And then, you know, these polkas would be mixed with waltzes and you'd look around and everybody would just be shuffling across the floor. You just hear their feet moving across what I think is sand they'd put down so that you'd move really smoothly. You just come out into the summer night and hear the fiddle music and get some fresh air. And at 10 o'clock, they'd serve lunch (laughs) where volunteers would come around with an assortment of horrible little sandwiches (laughs) and uh, and tea. And it was just such a a beautiful memory as I was making the Spotify playlist and thinking about all these dances we've gone to and 
And and then I also got thinking about the vaccine and how the vaccine's been rolling out across the country. And I've been thinking about these folks even more and hoping that if they haven't got their vaccines yet, hopefully they're close to it so that uh, we'll be able to have another Nova Scotia stomp in the summertime in the next couple of years. So that's what I've been nerding out about. Oh, adorable. Uh, It's on my list. Like, should I visit Nova Scotia when we can? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yes. And you can come hang out with me, obviously. Come out. It'll be great. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Corey, thank you so much for uh, nerding out with us uh, tonight. Uh, Where can people learn more about gravitational waves and LIGO? What you guys are doing down there? I would go to the LIGO Scientific Collaboration website, which is www.ligo.org. And you could find out more about what we're doing. You could find out about each specific detection we've detected so far and find out what's coming next. And what, what about you and the progress of your, uh, your kayak? Uh, can people follow you on social media? You could definitely follow me. So Instagram, I'm Corey underscore M underscore Gray. For Twitter, I am Quantum of Salsa. And, and then Facebook, you could look under Corey Gray as well. You should definitely go follow Corey. It is therapeutic watching the kayak on the water. And it makes, <laughs> it makes me feel like I'm almost kayaking. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We had a blast. And thank you, everybody who's listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can follow us on our socials at NerdNightYVR on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. But until we meet again, get out there and make wiggles in some space time. <laughs> <laughs>